Studio S M L. Welcome to the Studio SML podcast. In this series of candid conversations, we talk to some of the most established architects and designers in Singapore about how they got to where they are today. Hear about their personal journeys and the highs and lows of running a design practice in Singapore. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Starting out from a modest 9 meter square space, Gideon Kong and Jamie Yeo adapted constraints into an attitude towards graphic design and adopted temporary measures as sustainable systems. Since the founding of their practice, Gideon Jamie in 2017, the duo has expanded into the realm of publishing with Templary Press and conceptualized their current studio, Templary Unit, as a versatile space for connecting with communities through events. Our writer, Wong Sok Ting, finds out what shapes their sensibilities and how they collaborate as partners in work, creative practice and life. For this episode of Studio SML, we are happy to speak with Gideon Kong and Jamie Yeo of Gideon Jamie, a two-people studio designing and producing books, publications, and objects in close relation to writing, publishing, teaching, and running a small space for exhibitions and workshops. Welcome, Gideon and Jamie. I want to start with the beginning. Can you share a bit about how the both of you met and what is the story behind setting up Gideon and Jamie? We, we met uh, when we were studying product design at Tomasic Poly. Of course, I went on to do uh, national service, and then after that, she went to study industrial design at NUS. Uh, I didn't manage to get in. At that point of time, there was a two-year program from Glasgow School of Art uh, in partnership with uh, Singapore Institute of Technology, and but that was in communication design. So then I did that. We've been we've been always talking about design, and uh, looking at similar things, sharing ideas, and so on. Uh, and then after that, at some point. Uh, we got to work together at this uh, studio called Pupil People, who is run by Sean and Nicole. I, I can't remember what were the things we worked on uh, in general, but there was one uh, object, uh, a, a product for, for kids that we helped uh, with designing and putting together. And then after that, uh, Sean went to teach full-time and I, I, I tried applying jobs in, in various places. I didn't get it. And so then uh, we just decided to start a studio together. I mean, that was that was on our minds even before, but there wasn't any reason, particular push to do that. Uh, at that point of time, it seemed like it was a, that was the only option. Yeah. Mm, I think we got a commission project from his lecturer. No, he, he, she wasn't your lecturer, but uh, she was from, she was teaching in your school. Yeah, and I think that gave us the avenue to work together and I guess start putting something out together yeah yeah it must have been a leap of faith to start something entirely your own so I I did a little bit of sneaky stalking nice. on your <laughs> IG because I kind of know you guys but I'm also not familiar with your journeys um, and I saw a post where um, I think it was a picture of your first studio in t- 2017 when you first begun collective practice in like a nine square meter industrial unit. So it's been five years now and you guys have moved into a much bigger sunlit space. Um, I, I'm very curious to know um, how did you design the studio physically to encompass the variety of work that you do? Maybe I start with the, the small space. In a lot of ways, that space was meaningful to us because uh, it, it's really limited. Uh, floor area. The ceiling height was about 4 meters if I'm not wrong and uh, that can be considered our first major project uh, or or working together intensely because we had to solve quite a few problems in terms of storage. There is a printing area and then there is an area for like let's say if we need to do some cutting of wood and so on and then as well as the desk with our uh, laptops or computers and uh, so we had to build upwards. uh. Mm. And because that space was partitioned, so we can't fix anything onto the walls. Everything needs to stand alone. And so we had to build some kind of structure within that made use of long pieces of uh, wood uh, mm. that we bought for quite uh, cheap. And so there was this structure that we're building and it's, it's quite a small thing 
maybe for an architect. But for us, I remember there were quite a lot of arguments in uh, in trying to piece together that structure, even though it was really quite uh, simple. Maybe that's the start of us building things and making things work for us uh, without incurring uh, cost. Yeah, much cost. Much cost. Still had some cost. <laughs> yeah, raw material and time. Yeah, I think those were the most like expensive things. And um, when we moved to the larger one, there was a there was in between there was a flat, but I'll just skip to the larger space that we are now in. Uh, of course, this is then much easier to sort out. We know that there needs to be a large area uh, in the middle for all sorts of work. Because when we when we print things, uh, there will be stacks and stacks of paper uh, that we need to leave to dry or just uh, arrange them. Uh, and because a lot of things are done manually, uh, we need the table space. Uh. Previously, when we were in the small studio, the floor was just covered with prints and there wasn't mm-hmm. space to walk around. With that settled, then there is a, a small area for us uh, working uh, and then also storage, bookshelves. The space we currently at, it's quite uh, straightforward. Not much arguments. So how has moving into a much bigger studio space influenced your practice? There's literally a lot more room for thinking and making. And I guess that's why we also trying to do more event-based stuff because we can have people over, more people lah. It gives us a chance to to build a community, uh, even if it's a small or fragmented one. And that's been on our minds for quite a while. Yeah. Mm. And I think things like workshops or even just informal conversations or inviting friends to speak about their work. Yeah. And and all uh sort of related to graphic design as a discipline. This space allows us to do that. Like, although it took two years. Yeah, maybe that's another thing I should mention, like things don't happen uh Overnight, the with with all the furniture, it took time to purchase or build them, and we added on things one after the other, and we procrastinated, of course. Then and it took two years mm. for us to really start organizing a little bit more things mm. uh, and have people over. Do you see the studio space as a changing, morphing kind of space, which means that it actually never gets completed? So you will always be building on, upon it. Um, changing it to your needs or you know moving things around yeah definitely like the bookshelf has, has moved okay. and extended yeah mm. and I mean the, the space itself was meant for that because like some friends use it for a book talk they didn't need the tables that are in the middle of the space we put wheels uh, on the table so we can move them aside and then there's this huge empty area in the middle for more people to sit comfortably yeah, so the space in itself was made for that. It wasn't it wasn't really fixed. We wanted to have some moving elements. It is flexible enough la, to cater for different activities. Mm. In your very beginnings, the both of you worked with economical approaches and trying to practice within your means to stay independent. And even till now, what does this um, importance of independence and reliance mean to your practice? Again, maybe it's something that's shaped by the conditions uh, that we were faced with. Maybe we didn't try hard enough, but we didn't have as much funds or, or grants uh, in, the, in the beginning for projects. Yeah, but I, I, I'm sure it's because we didn't try hard enough. <laughs> anyway, so with, with that kind of uh, limitations, then uh, na- quite naturally, we had to work a lot with constraints. A lot of the projects that we get as well, they are uh, small in scale, mm. uh, not just in terms of budget, but also uh, sometimes content. It's, it's quite compact, simple, I'm not sure, maybe naturally, that shaped how we looked at things to be uh, economical, uh, first of all, in order for the studio to, to still be able to sustain itself. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's also a, that's also something we prefer. We don't like flamboyant things. Like, you, you spend a lot on making a finishing for the sake of a visual effect. That's something we try to avoid. But yeah, of course, we we'll, would still hope to have a little bit more... Budget to <laughs> yeah, do yeah, stuff. And, and, and things like that, yeah. I mean, having not enough funds, it bleeds over our mindset towards design and life. Yeah, in general. Mm. Do you feel like it has also conditioned your way of thinking, your creative thinking into like, every time you tackle a new project, it's always like, how can I do this most economically or most practically with the lowest part? It's instinctive. Yeah, it is. It is, right. I I think also it, it forced us to uh, go really in detail of like some production methods so that we can save 
this X amount of money now we have a clearer idea of okay we can do it in this way it's more economical it's better it saves the earth I mean we can say it saves the earth we won't know la, I mean, <laughs> we can't measure it but I mean other aside or aside from the practicalities I think it's also an attitude towards uh, design la, yeah. mm. rather than just something that we are responding to and hopefully the people that we work with also appreciate that kind of reduction and in some ways it also helps us uh, reach further into the essence of something yeah like mm. when we when we try to work with lesser things I think design in Singapore is always seen as like a luxury thing yeah like, that's true like you input design in so that you can make it seem more Aesthetic. higher status valuable yeah, valuable and I, I think for us it's, it's probably the other way around or like maybe you have a trying to look at it with a different sense of understanding of what luxury is I really appreciate that because when I look at the works that the both of you have put together it's very evident that this kind of reduction in DIY approach um, is very consistent like what Gideon mentioned it's an attitude towards design and it's very effortless because it feels like your brains have developed this way of approaching every project in this modest humbling way that's my observation yeah actually effortless I mean like it comes naturally but every time we have a, a, a new collaborator then maybe there's a little bit more things to, to work out it's not that uh, easy mm. uh, especially with a collaborator or commissioner that don't know our work that makes things difficult because maybe that is not what they're looking for so mm. although maybe it's effortless or, or, or slightly effortless for us but when it involves external parties uh, who uh, we don't know well uh, it might be even more challenging as compared to if we were to take another approach mm. Yeah. so to that point have you ever had to um, because of what your client wants change your attitude towards the design yeah, for specific projects, and then we stop working with them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you you have encountered people who don't do do not appreciate this type of um more modest approach in designing. Yeah, or maybe maybe not that specific, but just having a different, uh, different understanding mm. of what design is and what it can do or should do mm. for content or piece of work. Mm. My next question is actually a curiosity about the word temporary because from Gideon Jamie, the studio has also branched out in a publishing house that's called Temporary Press, which also hosts an exhibition and workshop space that is called Temporary Unit and also a gift shop that's called Temporary Catalog. More recently, Temporary Unit has also announced a residency with Catherine Hu, um, who is an amazing artist, and she is known as the temporary artist in unit so i'm very curious about the choice of word temporary and how it relates to your approaches or your thinking maybe i can start with why temporary press because that's the first thing that we started we started it in 2018 one year after the studio we we bought a risograph machine and we just wanted to make some books on our own so that um, we can save costs. So we didn't know how long we would do it for. Yeah, so then we thought yeah, it would be a it would be a temporary press and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, that's the e- easier answer. I mean we've been asked that before and we don't really have a reason. I like the sound of it. Uh and the fact that it's not very uh, a serious sounding. Like mm-hmm. it might be just something that is fleeting and if we disappear it's it's okay. I take comfort lah in that kind of naming. Uh, but then later on I think about it uh, uh, of course there's this temporal nature of things that we kind of have to accept uh, in our practice and uh, if I can mention like precarity is also something that we often think about or encounter or are in I've come to realise that it's not something inherently good or bad maybe like the conditions that we're talking about that that shapes our practice and our Mm -hmm. output it can also be a productive or meaningful way uh, for us to work yeah so that's the thought out answer that I have after like being asked for a few times yeah and of course the same thing about rent 
we don't know how long we mm. can uh, do it for. And there's also some, uh, like when we're making visuals for um, just putting on social media to, to, to promote the event, mm. uh, the visuals can be designed in a very makeshift manner. Like I don't need so much graphics or like layer it quite a lot. It's just text on no background. And uh, yeah, that works kind of well. Yeah. And it's... The branding. Yeah, if you want to call it branding. <laughs> but also, it, 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 it makes things a lot more efficient. Yeah, mm. we save time in quite practical ways. I thought it was quite a philosophical name because, like what you said, um, things in life are always very temporal, very transient. And it, it, it almost feels like no matter what the work that we do, are, it will always be temporary. But mm. I guess it also relates back to your beginnings that with the uncertainty and you took over a risograph machine and then naming it temporary press was very instinctive. So how do you um, demarcate between Gideon Jamie and everything else that is packed under temporary press? We don't do it uh, consciously. Uh, of course, uh, in terms of definitions or, or, or just for the sake of clarity, Gideon Jamie is a studio that encompasses all the activities that we do. Temporary press, publishers, so that's quite specific and, and it puts out books and it collaborates with uh, artists and, and authors, writers, uh, and publishers their work or our own work sometimes. Everything else, like temporary unit is the studio, there's a, there's a makeshift bookstore, uh, it's for programs. Uh, so yeah, these things are parked under what the studio does. Uh. Mm. Uh, but in terms of like, let's say, spending time on different aspects of the work there, there isn't really much of a distinction we just work on whatever needs to be done every point of time okay mm. and then in terms of um, funding like the programs and say like artists in residency exhibitions is it also like free-flowing between these two entities yeah maybe it's not the best way to do it <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah it, it's, it's like that so when we have a book to make then we put money in that book uh, and then after that maybe there's a pause and we have something else to do then we mm. spend on that yeah would you say that um, Gideon Jamie is kind of like a money maker and then temporary press and everything with it is like what you guys want to do for passion no in fact Gideon Jamie is what we want to do and everything else falls under what we want to do okay uh, of course, Gideon Jamie, as in the studio, let's, I, I won't call my, my outlets, <laughs> but that's weird. Uh, uh, the studio uh, takes in commissions and of course we get paid for that. Even then, it's not really money-making. Mm. Yeah. In fact, recently, I think Temporary Press has helped quite a lot in, in terms of sales and uh, distribution of books uh, to, to places. Uh, that sometimes, on the other hand, helps that's support uh, the studio activities. Okay. Yeah. And and that's that's the intention now. We don't want any of it to be like a side hustle. Yeah, we want everything to be part of the the primary practice. Hmm. Yeah. It's very interesting that it's the other way around because in my head publishing books is always a loss. I I think also because we print it on our own. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. that brings the cost really down, but And we design it I we design it sometimes for yeah. free, so yeah. I mean if it's our own books we have, we don't charge ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Then I guess it brings the cost really low and at least there's an avenue of uh, revenue that's coming in mm. but not much like, yeah. it's, mm. it's just at the moment we're really just still trying to make things work and of course sometimes for temporary press there are collaborators uh, that the authors who are also who have also funds mm. to put into the book and then that helps to increase let's say the print run and we can offset print it it's really trying to, to create a cycle where things uh, feed into each other not just in terms of content but also sustain each other the, the informal things that we organize uh, they, are, they are free but maybe uh, the bookstore is the one that would help sustain well since we're on the topic of book um, I want to go more into this idea of publishing as a major part of your practice. Some of your recent publishing works include Striking Advertising Matches from Singapore, which is a really cute and colourful palm-sized book that brings together 
your Hong Ing's collection of vintage advertising. We've also seen the Street Report publication at the recent Singapore Art Book Fair. Um, and that's in collaboration with Atiel Hoko and uh, Faiz Bin Zori. So that series looks at reporting of public beans and on hooks and holes of Sungai Road that are found on the streets. And then aside from these recent books, you have also developed artist books with Lai Yutong, Robert Zhao, Xiang Yun, Xavier Antin, and more. In some publications, both of you undertake the role of the artist, um, the photographer, the designer, and the publisher. How has the act of publishing under temporary press expanded your design practice? So we started publishing because we wanted to make books. Uh, but it's not just about how books uh, look, not, not just about the construction, the design, but also in terms of the content. Because with, with publishing, that, that brings about another aspect of the practice, which is editing or even deciding what to publish and what not to. Uh, that, that really uh, form a, a core part of our practice as designers who think about what we do and its role in society, if I can just put it generally. And there is a loose uh, connection across all the things that we uh, publish. Most of them, I think, or if not all of them, kind of touches on the definition of design, if, uh, to put it in general. If I can give examples, um, and if we start with the first few publications we did, there was one with uh, Sherry um, who writes about food and culture and uh, histories. Although she, she approached us, but we found that it was uh, really interesting and there were aspects of it that is very much related to design. Like, for example, looking at uh, Tsuta store menus, mm. uh, looking at uh, illustrations in home economics uh, textbooks from the past, um, looking at cooking utensils that hawker store uh, owners or, or people selling food uh, kind of improvise or edit to their use. I'm sure they appear somewhere in, in design discourse but it's not seen as the uh, dominant definition of what design is if we consider the general narratives uh, in, in Singapore. Um, and of course, there were others, like, for example, with Xavier Antin. He's French, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly. Uh, but yeah, for him, he's an artist and uh, uh, his work deals a lot more with graphic design, but he studied graphic design and his work kind of responds to the tools of production that we have today. Uh, maybe resisting... Uh, uh, conventional ways of using uh, machines like the desktop printer or the inkjet printer uh, that that somehow has a role in conditioning how we produce or what we produce. An aspect of this work involves hacking a large format inkjet printer and changing the way it produces prints. Mm. Uh, that in itself is, is something that is very much related to uh, graphic design and is of our interest. Uh, and so we approached it from that angle. Uh, and then if I were to give another example uh, the recent Matchbox one yeah so with Justin we uh, he runs Singapore Graphic Archives and so then he collects graphic design history uh, in, in, in different forms for me at least uh, maybe of my age I don't know but uh, it's not something I'm familiar with and when I look at that and I look at graphic design now in Singapore there's a huge difference and I, I don't know what happened in between that, that is enough a reason to just put it out as an object for circulation and, and get us to look at uh, materials or, or graphic design uh, things uh, that are from the past and uh, yeah, see what happens from them. We, we're not conscious of this, drawing these connections across all the titles, but again, it stems from our interests and also many of the books involve us speaking to uh, the authors or the artists. And so then naturally we would bring in uh, our perspective or, or a certain angle mm. and converse with them. Mm. Yeah. Which I think is very important because it's a dialogue between yourselves as a designers and publishers and the artists or the clients with their content. It, it almost feels like you are able to see design in almost anything. So if today I were to give you a different subject matter, you would bring your, your perspective of design within this realm and be able to have a dialogue with it. I yeah. guess that's what we hope. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe that's just our interest. That's why mm. it, it will naturally gravitate in that direction. Yeah, but of course we know that not everything might fall under 
our interest. So sometimes we might also have to just take a step back and mm. maybe hear more from someone else. Do you feel like um, your background <clears throat> in product design also lend itself into a very um, nice mix of approach that you would actually be able to see the design in objects, in graphics, in 3D, in 2D, and that then results in this very keen eye for things? I would think so. Recently, I realised that a lot of people who studied graphic design for their diploma, there's some kind of baggage that they are carrying. I mean, we have our own baggage. Yeah, but... (laughs) <laughs> I lost my train <laughs> What kind of baggage Are you referring to? Like like, uh, I mean That that was very apparent When I started working As a graphic designer In a In a uh, Kind of commercial studio And I realised that It's It's really hard for me To generate Visual Ideas Because it's In product design It's always uh, At least from The way we were Exposed More uh, conceptual Kind of, Slanted. yeah, and, and it, it follows a process. Like, there mm-hmm. needs to be a reasoning behind how an object turns out uh, based on whether it's the technology or the function. Uh, a very conventional way of, of, of approaching design, I would say. And so, looking at 2D visuals in terms of styles was something really <clears throat> unfamiliar, in fact, uncomfortable. Yeah, I wasn't good at it. And I wasn't versatile or, or dexterous in that sense. Maybe that was also a limitation, but uh, mm. I guess thinking back, uh, the way we were uh, approaching design from product design changed the way we look at things. And, and one one very easy example is how we see books as reading appliances, like they are objects of use. And, and therefore, sometimes we get a little bit more agitated when thinking about uh, the, the green direction of the paper because mm. it affects how the object feels and how you use it or even how it how it changes according to humidity and so on. But of course, that is also something many look at. But in particular, that's uh, something we'll always try to address uh, when making a book. In general, uh, that sort of education or, or background uh, have more of an impact on how we approach designing mm. rather than uh, uh, looking at things in terms of uh, two dimensions or three dimensions. Mm. Mm. I'm really glad that I'm speaking to you guys because now I feel like I understand better the different types of influences, whether it's product design or you know economical um, constraints when you guys first started and how all of that actually adds up to the way you design today. Where did your love for publishing and books stem from? This All these reading appliances out of every other product. I think Jamie don't like books, is it? Huh? I used to read books <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel about books <laughs> I'm always buying books in. I'm always stopping, stopping him from buying books <laughs> why books I think the the, the most like, obvious answer would be like oh they are a vehicle for uh, content and you can broaden people's minds through that but yep that's a really um Typical answer, so give me I remember sure. something you said in a previous interview. Oh, really? uh, you mentioned that when we were product designers, it's quite hard, or at least for us, to have an independent practice. Because mm. to design and actually manufacture a product, it's it's in, it involves a lot more, more costs and and a lot more capital uh, and a lot more investment. You need you need investors. You definitely would have to involve external parties, or maybe we are the the one that is providing it as a service rather than an independent practice. And that is also why we bought the Riso because we have control over production. And after you put in the first amount of money to purchase the machine, everything else is quite manageable, like paper. You can do it at your own time. You don't have to run the machine all the time. And we can produce, in a sense, products that way. And uh, it, it it works out uh, for us uh, for to, to pursue an independent practice. Mm. So it also goes back to the whole idea of keeping your practice sustainable and manageable between the both of you, right? Yeah. That it, it a book form is portable and it's and it's not too um excessive to make with just the both of you in your studio space. And therefore it, it makes a really good space to be developing creatively. 
I guess because it, it it also encompasses our skill sets in like in, in graphic design, book mm. design and then uh in product design which is the production uh side. Yeah and also then maybe the last part will be the the handcrafted part where sometimes we have to make the books ourselves. The, the ability to prototype things and it all falls nicely into this whole book form. And speaking about making things with hand, both of you are very into DIY and I think some of your um, furnitures or aspects of your studios are actually handmade. What is it about DIY that appeals to your practice? Just in case listeners are wondering, like the DIY is very makeshift and very raw in a sense it, it's just enough to work so like let's say a table made out of flat pieces of wood cable tied together so it's not exactly the most comfortable table but it works really well for uh let's say when we shift into new places that's the first thing we set up and the first thing we use it's large enough to put a lot of things uh, or as a work desk uh yeah so uh it's not the kind of uh diy that is quite polished for for us it's it's again about the the fact that we we can make things work for ourselves without without buying, let's say, a large table. We could actually just build it with very simple handheld tools. We don't need a workshop. We can do it within the mm-hmm. space. Drilling holes, buying bolts and nuts, fixing things together in the most uh, convenient ways. Mm. I think sometimes the problem is, like, we, we look at this thing, we're like, okay, we want to buy it. And then we realise, actually, why not we just put, like, three pieces of wood together and, okay, it will work. And I'm like, okay, let's just not spend the this $25 on this thing. and No, well, most of the time it's a few hundred for... Oh, okay. <laughs> just drill it together, you know. Like, who is a better DIY person between the both of you? Or who does more, more of the DIY? I think I'm more like... Gang, not gang ho, you put your head in. Yeah, you she just jumps, jumps into in, things. Yeah. And then he'll be like, no, it doesn't work this way. And, and that's where we fight because... Like, oh, it's structurally not strong, you know, and... Yeah, it will wobble and things like that. Yeah, but uh, she has a lot of uh, patience to fix things. Like, Mm. for example, the Riso machine is something that we have quite a lot of problems with because it's second... You know, I don't know how many... It's it's second-hand, but it went through many people. And so we had issues with it. We called for help from uh, the headquarters, but uh, there there wasn't really uh, much they could do. And uh, she was the one who fixed it. Now. That is something that I cannot do and, as, uh, and, and don't have the patience for. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a handy woman. And between the both of you, like, how do you negotiate the different roles within each project? Ideally, we should work as one. But if you really want to pinpoint, most of the graphic designing is done by Gideon because he was trained in that when he went to university. And, and I mean, only how many people can work on the file, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think more. Actually, sometimes it's a lot more. It's slower. And yeah, and then so, so sometimes as the project progresses, then we just each take up the roles that needs to be filled. Yeah, the roles fall into place. Mm. Sometimes we even just create group chats so that we can both be in and yeah. we just input whenever we have because usually I would, I would take on the uh, artwork preparation mm. that means like preparing for production I guess it's also boils down to my studying in industrial design la. or maybe it's just this interest in production in making things mm. yeah or making things work trying to make things work yeah I would say the ideas component the part where we conceptualize things that is often done together mm. uh, most of the time it can't happen uh, without us talking about uh, the ideas it has been the case since the first project we worked on the idea comes when we talk to one another about uh, the approach or the contents and look at it together maybe it's just having someone to bounce the ideas off and when does work and practice end and when does it start whenever we want to <laughs> so you can you can be at home you can be in a studio you can be out for a dinner and, and you can still be talking about all these things yeah it's also because it's our interest and that's why it's important to keep it independent it shouldn't be purely a, a business because then it wouldn't be fun anymore if, if it's part of our uh, daily life and general interest then uh, we need to protect it la. that also means we, we, we rest la, when, whenever we can it's, it's really not like saying okay I'm going to work now 
I, I don't think that really works for us. Yeah, and, and most of the ideas happen off work time. Like when we're not working, the working time is really like, let's say we're printing, we're putting things together, mm-hmm. uh, typesetting. Yeah. Have you guys ever wanted to hire other designers or even bring in interns, especially when work is too much for the both of you to handle? Mm, we occasionally have help to deal with production, mm. maybe more for the temporary press side. Yeah, we have assistants uh, here and there, very uh, low commitment. Whenever they are free, they will help. We've talked about that. Ideally, we, we don't want to hire someone as part of the studio. We would want to, let's say, collaborate with someone uh, who, who wants to start an independent practice and share similar interests. Uh, that's uh, important. And then collaborate uh, on things, uh, sharing projects, if we can, if there is enough. They help us, but with the intention of uh, starting their own practice eventually. So that's the that's where we would like to head towards. I don't know how long it would take. but So it will be more collaborative. Yeah. Not so much as like an employer hiring. Them. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's feasible. Maybe some would say it's not practical, but I'm not sure until I try it. Mm. Mm. It almost sounds like some kind of incubation program where there's a bit of funding to help someone kickstart, but at the same time also mentorship and guidance. And eventually the hope is that this person or this collective will be able to take off on their own. Yeah, and, and maybe this is this has been done, I think, it, yeah, in, I, in different ways. Yeah. Like. In other, in and in other outfits as well. Like yeah. Know. But of course, that can also happen if someone just works purely as an employee in mm. a company. That has also happened. So, mm. yeah. So, in terms of collaborations, um, what kind of projects and ideas excite the both of you the most? I mean, most of it are friends. We already know or sort of know. And every time when uh, these friends look for us to work on things we are excited and, and I guess even if the initial brief didn't sound as exciting we will get excited about the idea yeah yeah you're right yeah. Hmm. yeah I mean there was a, there was a project we worked on where they asked us to design a booklet a very conventional brief just a booklet hmm. 30 over pages of course hmm. uh, the, the contents are interesting but it's not particularly exciting as like a design brief but once we found the idea that works for that uh, context, then it becomes exciting. Right, because you love what you're doing, so you make it exciting for yourself at some point. And then you have the both of you to, you know, bounce ideas off each other. Yeah. I don't think we purposely make it exciting, lah, but it comes to it be. It just, right. the, the, like we said, wow, this idea is quite cool. Ah. Like, when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're right. Captures the the attitude. <laughs> it's like self assurance. And and it, I guess it's all. It also is dependent on the the person we're working with. Like they give room for that to happen, and they are, they themselves are excited about mm. this unusual or unexpected. Not all the time, but sometimes or most of them we try to find something that is mm. unexpected, and they themselves are interested and excited about it. That that helps. Uh, yeah. mm. That is also mm. important for us. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess the energy from your collaborators or clients is also quite important. And as designers who work extensively with artists, do you think there is a fine line between art and design? Are these categories distracting or helpful? Because sometimes your role may not be that clear, right? Because mm-hmm. you take on so many hats. I think increasingly it gets blurrer. Or we find that there's no... Need. need to differentiate like we, we, we like parts of the artistic uh, mind and we also like parts of the design practice yeah yeah so instead, instead of a fine line I guess it's a grey area la, that we mm. we kind of enjoy being in but of course I don't identify myself or ourselves as artists I think we are still designers mm. and I, I also like to use the word graphic design uh, because it's outdated nobody uses that anymore uh, yeah so we see ourselves as designers that uh, have a, a kind of like an expanded or broader practice mm. that bleeds into other areas and I, I, I think those distinctions are helpful in a, in a way because although we, we try not to consciously think about it but they're helpful in a way because uh, it shows where we're coming from uh, in terms of the things we read the people we reference the ideas we interact with very, they are very much rooted or situated in design discourse uh, rather than field of art which is mm. actually sometimes quite intimidating for me I would 
have a preference for terms, but that's just more because of uh, what I'm more comfortable familiar with. I think that's a very good answer. Like when you say it, it, it helps when you give a sense of where you're coming from, like what kind of um, references that you're making. Mm. And to add on to like whatever we're talking about just now, how do you then um, negotiate the creative boundaries and integrate design thinking that complement artistic intentions, especially when you work with artists, artist books, or even like exhibition design for artists? Yeah, to, to be honest, that's still something we're figuring out along the way. And I guess with every step we take, we hope uh, to push the boundaries a little bit more. Uh, and maybe at one point where it's really too much and it crumbles, then we know. Maybe at that point, we'll know. But at the moment, I, I think it's it, we're still unsure of where that line is or even if there is a boundary. But a lot of times, it also depends on the nature of the project. Uh, if you're working with someone who has got a very clear idea of uh, what the output is like, and we feel that there is no need to add anything to it, then we, we don't do anything so that there isn't. It's really just practically putting it together in book form. Yeah, and I think maybe a, a, an example would be Yitong's recent book. Uh, Tom's uh, Day Out. Yeah, so that one we really did not... Uh, I mean, like, it's invisible labour. Mm. It's thinking about the format uh, and also with uh, practical aspects, how to achieve a book just with uh, one... Uh, one sheet of paper, uncut sheet, uh, and and just achieving the most with uh, the least in terms of cost. Um, and for him, he's interested to to develop a series of those books. And so then uh, we were we just made the grid, yeah, the guidelines in the working file, so that he can use it and to implement uh, the future titles. Mm. Yeah, so that 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 maybe is an example where we don't interfere as much because there is no need to. Whereas, um, like in other projects, maybe it's the, the brief is quite open in itself. Like just now, I was talking about the the one that's thirty over pages booklet, and so then there's room, uh, for something unexpected. You mentioned the idea of invisible labor just now. And maybe it's not the right term. <laughs> but I I think it's very interesting because sometimes the best design is not visible, right? Like it 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 exists to. Um, work in a very subconscious level mm. that mm. it's so good that you don't even know that it's there but it actually facilitates the way you read or you perceive or you understand some things and that kind of in- invisible labor it appears to me almost like a deeper level of thinking in creating systems in creating um, some kind of user interface if you will. Uh-huh, uh-huh. and maybe just adding on to what you're mentioning I guess a lot of of that for me comes through typesetting mm. so uh, because typesetting is what directly affects the reading experience uh, not not even just layout but just how text sit together in lines and on the page uh, and, and just looking at the proportions between uh, what is printed and what is not uh, yeah but on the other hand we there are also a lot of occasions where we interfere and, mm. and it's not really it's it's visible in fact that's the main thing you see when you look at it and what's so, one of the biggest risk uh, what, that, that crossing of that boundary what's one of the, that biggest step that you've recently uh, maybe this one is not so much visual but in terms of idea there was a project that we did for Shai, uh, Shairu yes that's curated by Bernie yes correct uh, How We Learned yes uh, so for the exhibition graphics we propose to use a stock image yeah. uh, it's a stock photo of blank canvases or frames in a gallery setting uh, that is meant for photographers or artists to superimpose their work to make it look realistic. And there was no design actually, it's just the header and then just that as the key visual. So I, I maybe that's the the worst we did. The worst? I thought it was super clever. No, I mean like in terms of push, uh, in terms <laughs> of something unexpected, yeah, that was the worst. And most visible no. In a sense, uh, the one that interferes the mm. most yeah and that was developed um, by taking a spin on the idea of learning relearning unlearning there was one very obvious literal almost superficial connection because it was a photography showcase without photographs and so the stock images were literally that la. it's a photography exhibition without photographs, without photographs. Uh, that was something we discovered at the end yeah. but I think at first we were thinking about uh, systems of knowledge because uh, both 
the artists were questioning system of knowledge in 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 the areas that they were interested in. One is in um, orchestral uh, mm. music. The other one is in uh, land uh, mapping. Yeah, uh, I'm not experts in those areas. So then I look at graphic design. What is considered a system of knowledge in our field? And one of it is, of course, uh, the use of stock images. They they condition the way the way we think about reality. Uh, for example, if you just search success, you get a certain stereotypical portrayal or, or photography. There was also a lot of art exhibitions where the artwork is taken as the key visual. And so we wanted to deliberately do the opposite of that, to use something else that is entirely different, but yet at the same time quite literally points to the ideas behind the work. Mm. I went the... to the exhibition and I thought that the, the booklet was really clever and very fun. It almost felt like I was a child again. I was given this sticker paper with squares and I can choose whatever image I want to paste into it. And it changes the meaning of the text on each page. You then become the active agent in deciding the meanings across this booklet. Mm. That idea came about when we were trying to not show any of the words in the catalogue. And so then uh, a sticker sheet seems like a not so much a compromise, but some ways where uh, it, it, it it's a solution where we can not have any images in the catalogue, but still at the same time have it. And of course, the, the reader can choose to paste the stock images instead of the mm. artworks. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't... <laughs> I'm glad they didn't uh, like, kill me for it. I think they love it. No, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I guess this question is more personal. What have you learned from each other over the years, working as partners in work, in creative practice, and in life? I think I learned to let go a bit more. Yeah, because... Because? <laughs> because? <laughs> Don't look too much at the small things. Because I'm not a very big picture person. I like to look like at small things. And I get lost. At Sometimes I have to step back and like, okay, this is the big picture. And yeah, we should not be so intim about the small things. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's certain operations of the studio that you are quite particular about. Whereas I I tend to suggest a lot more ideas, sometimes a little bit too much, and then uh, we cannot keep up. Mm. And we end up disappointing people uh, because we, we say, okay, let's do this, and, and it doesn't happen. Oh yeah, it's too so, excited. Yeah, yeah. So I learned about my limitations, uh, the things that I cannot do, <laughs> which, is, which is very real. I'm a parent, and she would know. Uh, and most of the time I'll just uh, pass it to her <laughs> <laughs> yeah. pass to me the things that I'm not good at oh okay, okay. Yeah. Le- learn to let go of the things that you cannot do yeah so it's, it's similar so learning how to let go of the smaller things and then learning how to let go of things that you cannot do yeah and, and also learning to uh, be more open to uh, criticisms uh, I guess if I were, I were to like talk about it in terms of our relationship working together but we always criticize each other yeah so that's why we're learning oh okay and and to be more uh, open about it like don't always assume that uh, the, the way a certain thing is done is right or the best way to do it mm. yeah actually it's quite abstract the way we're talking yeah I mean I'm, I'm sure like being partners in so many areas it's it's, it's not a straightforward answer because different aspects of life get gets meshed into one. Yeah. Okay, and, and, and I'm also curious like whether there are any changes you would like to see in the design industry in Singapore. We try to make the changes that we like to see. It's 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 a very big statement, but it's also what it is like and and, and for the longest time we've been like frustrated also with ourselves. Uh, if we want to see this happen then uh, we should be the ones at least trying to do it. Uh, need not be it need not start out very in a very grand way, but like uh, just let's say getting people to share information about their own practice that helps one another build their practices. Uh, we try to make these uh, changes one step at a time. And temporary press is also is also about that because we wanted to see uh, our friends also putting out uh, content because we are interested in those content ourselves. And so then why not publish it together? And a lot of them are very simple uh, there almost sometimes almost no design it's really just putting content together in a way that makes sense and just distributing it circulating it it's open book 
the series of discussions part of this effort? Yeah, yeah, it also is. Uh, we often look at our books produced here and more than half are, like, let's say, paper green direction is, is, is in the yeah. wrong side. And so then why not just get people to talk about it? And mm. I guess we just hope that there's more care. Yeah, yeah, that's also yeah. the only, there's more care. And and it's not to say that we are we are putting a lot of care. care. It's it's just I guess maybe when if like when we get people to share about whatever they've done. I mean so far we've only done two. Two? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like we can learn from them as well. It's so it it benefits not only the people who come but it benefits us as well. Right? Yeah, it's mm. quite selfish in a way. Also. <laughs> so we learn all the trade secrets. <laughs> and um, it's not recorded. Not published anywhere yet. Is that going to be a final outcome from this series of discussions? Uh, no promises, but we try to. We are trying to make a a, a catalog of information where the different designers would share. Uh, let's say uh, paper stock that they often use because even that that is a barrier actually for someone starting. Mm. Like I don't know the prices behind this. Of course, I can ask the paper merchant, but uh, if that information is more immediately accessible. I guess it will help. It will make it a lot easier for someone to, uh, who, for someone who want to make books to move into it, uh, with a little bit more confidence, understanding, knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So something as simple as that, and it's yeah. what we faced actually in the beginning. In the like beginning. we're looking at papers, we're not sure how much, the different papers cost. Yeah. And, and yeah. you can't be calling the merchant and like I want to know the price of this. Actually, this, you this, can. This. They're more than helpful to help, <laughs> okay. but it's just we are. I think it's also a, a, um, in a way knowledge sharing passing down what, what you figured out and I guess the change that you guys are working towards is also making the design industry a little bit more nurturing um, making time to stop and share and exchange not always rushing deadlines and giving that, that kind of space and care for each other's work and processes yeah hopefully it's that I, yeah hopefully. I can't say that about what we're doing but yeah hopefully it's that looking forward to that and we will stay tuned to your Instagram accounts um, at temporary press at temporary unit yes right and at Gideon Jamie yes alright thank, thank you, you thank so you. much thank you. thanks a lot thank you for listening to the Studio SML podcast to hear the stories of more Singaporean architects and designers head to www.studiosml.net where you can find out more about Studio SML as well as all our podcast episodes.